The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn to Genesis 41, you know, in the middle, in the middle of the account of Joseph's confirmation of prime minister and the establishing of the office that he is to hold, there is a parenthesis about his domestic circumstances. And verses 50 through 52 says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, before I get into where I'm going in the message, I think it's important to point something out here that I think is very critical, and often we just kind of blow by it. Verse 52 says, God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You know, when you and I are in a difficult situation and our circumstances are difficult, generally our prayers are, God, get me out of here, right? God, get me as far away from this as you can. But God made Joseph fruitful in the very land that made him a slave, in the very land that put him in prison. There in that same land, God made him fruitful. And so I think the more you and I begin to understand the character of God and see it radiated so clearly from Joseph, we begin to understand it doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter if we're still in the midst of that situation we call difficult. God will make you faithful and he will make you fruitful if you trust him right where you are. Now, by now, we should be vividly aware of the importance of names in the Bible. Adam is the word for dust or earth. For God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into him the breath of life, Genesis 2.7. Eve means mother in the sense of life giver. Adam said she was to become the mother of all living, Genesis 3.20. Cain means here he is. Seth means granted or given by God. So it goes throughout the whole history of the human race in the first part of Genesis. And in light of this symbolism, it's not surprising that we find Joseph naming his two sons forgetting and doubly fruitful as testimony to the faithfulness of God that brought him through a most tumultuous life. What I want you and I to take away from this morning's message is that Joseph's experience of God's favor, symbolized by the names of his son, should be the experience of every one of us. Now that may seem like a tall order to get your hand around, but the fact that God works the same way as he, in the, with Joseph as he does with us today, you and I can rely on the fact that God will do the same things. He may not call you to be a prime minister. He may not put you through the same things. But the end result is God wants to accomplish in your life what brings glory to him. And he will work through the same situation. So I want to begin by talking about selective memory. 
Now, when you hear that term, generally you, you think of it in a negative term, right? We all know people who forget what they shouldn't and remember the things they shouldn't, right? But here, we're talking about it in a completely different capacity. One of the most rewarding studies in the Bible, word studies, is this word forgetting. But before we deal with the forgetting in a good sense, as the name of Joseph's first son, Manasseh, means, I think it's important for us to understand the background of what we should be remembering. And it's against that background that we'll find the good forgetting is really important. Let me explain. The background, of course, is that men and women easy forget what they shouldn't. This is true of all human relations. People forget the debt they owe others. This is even truer in people's relationship with God. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 5 says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, which were spiritual realities. So for this reason, the Bible is filled with poignant appeals to men and women not to forget God's commandments. And a chief complaint against Israel in the Old Testament was that the people had forgotten God. In fact, the great lawgiver Moses writes in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18, You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 17a, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Jeremiah 3.21, a voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and the pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Jeremiah 13.25, this is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted a lie. Jeremiah 18.15, but my people have forgotten me, and on and on I could go. Now, surely they didn't forget God existed. But they forgot that God was the one leading them. They forgot that God's ways were the best ways. They forgot that God had their best interest at heart. And you know what? It's exactly the same today. How often we forget the reality that God is deliberately working in the hearts and lives of each one of us. <clears throat> and that the plans that we make are often out of line with the direction God is giving us. And because the people repeatedly forgot God, the Old Testament also frequently admonishes them to remember him and his benefits. You recall David's statement in Psalm 103 verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. When we're talking about God, the commands of God, or God's great deeds in behalf of his people, it is a gift to remember what he did. Sometimes when life is at the bottom and you don't know where it's going, it's good to remember that God loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. It's good to remember that no matter where you are, God never leaves you nor forsakes you. It's good to remember that even though life seems upside down, God is in control of every situation. And so it is on the background of this that we need to look at what we should be forgetting. Remember sins no more. <clears throat> there is a, a proper place for forgetting, 
And it is that which brings us really close to Joseph. And what it is that the believer of God should forget? Well, first of all, any sin that has been confessed. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this verse bases our assurance of forgiveness on two things that are found in God's character. First, God is faithful. This has bearing on the forgiveness because it means that God is faithful to the promises he made. And 1 John 1.9 is one of those promises. So when he says, if you confess your sins and repent of them, you can be assured you're forgiven. And secondly, God is just. This refers to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is the basis of his death that God can forgive justly without violating his holiness. You see, because God is absolutely holy, there can be no sin in his presence. So the idea of man trying to do good and do works to get to him is absolutely impossible because we're all sinners. But because of God's great mercy, he sent his son to take on the flesh of human, to identify with humans, and then die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Therefore, God is not only just, but he's also the justifier. Romans 3 verse 26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, the, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when you realize the literal meaning of justification, you understand that when you have come to Christ and given him your life, you're not only assured of sin, of salvation, but you're assured that when God looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Christ and sees you washed and pure. Now, if that's not motivation to walk in God's grace, I don't know what is. So the case gets even better, though. Because in the book of Jeremiah, God says that not only does he forgive sins, but he actually remembers them no more. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is undoubtedly meant to contrast what we hear about how God remembers. For example, Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So the one who is in Christ is never forgotten. God says of the wicked in Amos 8, 7, the Lord has sworn by the people of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. The evil is remembered at the judgment seat of the great white throne, and judgment is meted out. But for the child of God, these texts promise key things. And yet, in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, God says that I will remember their sins no more. 
So when you've confessed your sins and come to Christ, we're to forget them. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The penalty is gone. Isaiah 38, verse 17, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Can you imagine that? Confess sins before God, he like throws them behind his back so he doesn't look at them. But here's the great verse, Isaiah 43, 25, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. You see, he doesn't only forgive your sins for our benefit, but he does it for his own sake. God wants no sin in his presence. And when you're under the blood, he blots them out for his own sake. Now let that sift in your mind a little bit. The reality that for God's own sake, when, he, when you confess sins, he removes them. It's an amazing, powerful reality. You know, some of you have been wronged by others. It's caused you a whole lot of pain and tragedy. Some of you are plagued by this, unable to let it go. Are you able to forget as your heavenly Father has forgotten your transgressions? If God loves you enough to forget, are you able to forget those who have wronged you? Joseph forgot the pain caused by his brothers because he knew that they were tools in the hand of God. And when you and I have an understanding that even the people that affect us in a negative way, God is using them to, de to develop you and to mold you. I'll tell you who will bring it up, the devil. The devil will bring it up because the devil will try to hinder your present walk with Christ by remembering past failures. The devil will say, well, God's never going to bless you. Look what you did. A real Christian doesn't do things like that. Surely. God's not going to bless you. But let me be clear. If you find yourself thinking along these lines, it's not the voice of God you're hearing, but the voice of Satan. And if you have been justified, you have no right to even think that way. Of course, if you have unconfessed sin, it may be a point of conviction to get you to deal with it. Now, I'm not talking about confessing to a priest or someone other than the one you've wronged, but confessing to God with a pure and clear heart of the, your desire to repent. The joy. Imagine the joy of being able to let the past go. And this is what is meant by 2 Corinthians 5.17 when it says, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. Sometimes... The effects of sin stay with us because of bad decisions. But before God, it's gone. And it's up to you and I to rest in that truth and walk in the grace that he's provided us. So all this has been preparation for appreciating the text where Joseph is said to his named his son Manasseh since God. God had made him forget his trouble 
and his father's household, forgetting the past. That subject here is not dealing with any sin of Joseph, but rather the sorrow and the troubles that plagued him through his life. Joseph was saying that God had enabled him to forget these as well. Again, Joseph did not mean that he forgot he ever had a father or that he had 11 brothers. But in the very next chapter, we discover how much he missed them and longed to see them again. He meant rather that God had healed his wounds, suffered as a result of past abuses and disappointments, and has made his life fruitful. In other words, again, Joseph is letting God be God. Now, you recall in chapter 50, when the brothers realize that Joseph is the governor, and they fall down begging forgiveness, you remember what Joseph said to them. He said, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Are you telling me that 11 brothers who hate him so much put him in a pit for the direct purpose of killing him and then wind up selling him to a bunch of traders heading to Egypt, you telling me God could use that? Well, the reality is, Joseph wouldn't be where he was today if it wasn't for that. Listen, the sooner you and I start viewing our difficult circumstances as blessings from God, the sooner we will be free from their bondage. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. All things, even the hatred of brothers, even the false accusation of a crazy woman, even years in prison, God used it in his plan. So many people are so wrapped up in the past disappointments that it's a struggle to see the hand of God in their life today. Joseph refused to be the prisoner of his past disappointments, choosing rather to keep his mind and heart on God. And that's what kept him so level through those 13 years. You know, I can't help thinking of how the apostle Paul put it. In Philippians 3, 12 through 14, when he said, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's heart is. Paul murdered Christians. He was the biggest thorn in their flesh. He did all he could to stamp out Christianity, a vile, evil man. But when God saved him and appointed him to be his messenger, he forgot those things. Any person could have said, God, how are you ever going to use me? Look what I did to your people. 
I'll just thank you for salvation and move along. No. He not only forgot the past, it says in the most demonstrative way that he pressed, he strained forward to the prize. His whole life was surrendered and focused on living for Christ with every ounce of his being. When Paul wrote that he forgot those things, of course, he wasn't talking about uh, the Christian doctrine or anything because he had just written a tremendous letter about it. He knew that all he had of value was through Christ. So Paul's forgetting was along the same lines as Joseph's forgetting. And he outlines much of them in 2 Corinthians 6 to give you an idea what Paul was talking about. Beginning of verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and affliction and hardships and calamities and beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, though honor and dishonor through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You see, God kept him through those circumstances and he remembered what God had done in his life. And so these hardships never knocked him off what God wanted him to be. And isn't that exactly like Joseph? I think, too, of that Paul was unwilling to remember past blessings if those would get in the way and hinder his walk. You recall a great example of this was with God leading Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt, to the promised land. God had provided everything they needed for their journey. Shade for the hot days, a pillar of fire at night, manna and water for food, but they grew tired of it. In fact, Numbers 11, verses 5 and 6 says, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, and the, it cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlics, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. You ever get tired of God's blessing when you want things a little differently? We should be thankful for the past when we realize that God is in it just as much as he is today and just as much as he will be tomorrow. The problem is that we're often leeks and garlic Christians. We constantly look at what we don't have, what we could have had, and we don't focus on what God is actually doing. You see, Joseph knew God was in complete control. Therefore, he could forget the trials of the past and press on to the future. Therefore, Joseph was able to let the past go. And it freed his heart and it freed his spirit to concentrate on the blessings ahead. And this is what's so critical for you and I to know. Because far too often, we're hindered in the future because we're living in the past. 
We stumble in the future because we're living in the past. And God says over and over all through Scripture, come to me and I will lead you, says the Lord. So are you able this morning to let the past go? To turn from that which is holding you back and be free to let God use you in the future? Now we come to the part that everybody likes, the abundant fruit. We come now to the second son, Ephraim, whose name means doubly fruitful. There must have been times in Joseph's life when he thought fruit was just a passing idea. He had tried to do good works for Potiphar, but it had come to nothing. Even his faithfulness in prison came to nothing. He would have never had an honorable position. He's probably thinking he would never have a home. He would never have a wife. He would never have kids. God was training him, but at the time, he didn't know that. Just like you and I in our present situations, we're going through something. We don't know what the future holds. All we think about is, what if? And God says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. I died for you. And my goal is to make you into a life that brings glory to me. The day came when God transformed his circumstances and made him so fruitful that years later, when his aged father Jacob came to reflect on his son's remarkable life, it was Joseph's fruitfulness that particularly grabbed Jacob's heart. And he says in Genesis 49, verse 22, Joseph is a faithful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shoot at him, harass him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your fathers who helped you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. You see, Jacob was overwhelmed with the fruitfulness of his son. And imagine as Jacob realized as the story unfolded what his son had been for, been through, yet what impressed him was his fruitfulness. I'm also realizing here the example of Joseph being a type of Christ in verse 24. From there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. It's just like Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, a living stone <clears throat> rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. <clears throat> and who can forget Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. Joseph is a type of Christ, a stone standing strong. Now, when you think of the fruitfulness of Joseph, you're powerfully reminded of Psalm 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. You see, God has prepared a place for you right next to Joseph. And the blessings that God did through this man, he will do through your life. Scripture echoes that. And and I find it interesting that Joseph named his first son forgetting and his second son doubly fruitful and not the other way around. For no one can really be fruitful until the past has been dealt with once and for all and forgotten. And when you live in the past, you're destined to stumble in the future. Do you let the past go? Now, sometimes people will hear all this and they'll go, Okay, Craig, but that was way in the Old Testament. That was a whole different time. Well, let's bring it into the New Testament and show you exactly how this fits together for you and I. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about in John 15 when he used the same image to predict a fruitful spiritual life for his disciples. Jesus said that he had chosen them as God the Father clearly chose Joseph. He would prune their branches as God pruned Joseph during the years of his suffering. He would keep them close as they would remain in him in all circumstances as God kept Joseph close during the years of his trouble. The result promised for you and I is exactly what was promised to Joseph and let me show you why. John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Do you remember when Pharaoh came to Joseph and he said, I hear you interpret dreams. Do you remember what Joseph said? I can't interpret dreams. God interprets dreams. What did that verse say? A branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in me. You see, you and I can't get the successes we want to have, but when we abide in Christ, he lives through us. And it is his power that performs it. It's his grace, his mercy, his Holy Spirit. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's the exact same thing we have seen in the life of Joseph. I can't do this work. Only God does it. And friends, you and I can't do the Christian life. Only he can. But when you rest in him, when you abide in him, then he abides in you. John 15, 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears, what? Much fruit. It's like Joseph's double fruit. When you abide in him, you bear much fruit. 
And Joseph named his son Ephraim double fruit because God prospered him in the land of his persecution over and above anything imaginable because he relied in God. And this is what Jesus is saying to you and I. When you abide me and I in you, you bear fruit. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You want to know why Joseph was fruitful? Why Joseph was blessed with double fruit? Because it glorified God the Father. And what does verse 8 says? By this my Father is glorified. You see, the greatest thing you and I can do is get our mind off the trial and put it on God. The greatest thing you and I can do to succeed in life is to forget the past and move forward, pressing on as Paul did. The greatest thing you and I can do is cast all our care on him, no matter what happens, no matter what difficulty, no matter what trial no matter what life dishes at you, knowing full well that God is in control. Sometimes it's not pleasant. I can't think of anything more unpleasant than being hated by your own kin. I can't think of anything more unpleasant than being a slave unwillingly and then being falsely accused and thrown into prison for something you didn't do. Can it get much worse? It feels worse when you're in it. But the story of Joseph and the words of Jesus carry the very same message. Abide in me and I in you. And you will bear much fruit. Do you believe that this morning? Are you surrendered to him in such a way that he can be glorified that when Jesus looks at you, can he say, by this my Father is glorified because of your life? Because you abide in me? And you freed me to live and work through you to be a resounding testimony? Remember, because, because Joseph did this, Pharaoh looked at him and not only recognized Joseph's ability, but recognized that Joseph, God, was the real thing. And all because... Joseph obeyed God. Now, there's no way of getting away from the reality that that is available to you and I today. Everything that I have said in this message is for you. That's why God recorded Joseph for our admonition today. That's why the words of Jesus are recorded. Because he wants to be glorified through your life. And he's given us the tools to do it. Jesus Christ loved us so much to ensure this whole plan. The just became the justifier. And he sent his son, the creator, 
to die for the created. To bear your sins and mine on Calvary. Now in the Old Testament, they had sacrifices to look ahead to Christ's coming. We don't need those anymore because Christ came. The great sacrifice is done. So now what we do is we look back to what he did by remembering what he did through the cup and the bread as a reminder of what he's done for us. As we come to this communion table this morning, I would encourage you to examine your heart completely honestly. Are you abiding in Christ? You may claim to be a Christian, but are you abiding? Are you resting in the reality of who he is? As the men come in preparation, I want you to spend a few moments and be completely honest with your heart. Completely honest. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.